Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week, Under the Radar, a special edition celebrating creativity. We begin this show with two Boston-based geniuses, MacArthur geniuses, that is, and in with a little joy. For our annual Genius Next Door series, we're picking the brain of neurologist Dr. Beth Stevens about her groundbreaking work on the human brain. Then we'll be talking about the research behind the research with healthcare economist and MIT assistant professor Heidi Williams. We'll hear how each got word of their prestigious MacArthur Awards and where they'll be taking their careers next. Then, what happened to Mr. Joy? Everybody asked that question in the new play by Arts Emerson artist-in-residence Daniel Beatty. Actress Tangela Large brings the characters to life in a one-woman tour de force. Large and Beatty join me for a conversation about both play and performance. We're dipping into the brain trust with 2015 MacArthur Genius and neurobiologist Beth Stevens. Dr. Stevens' work focuses on how changes in the architecture of the brain pave the way for degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at Harvard Medical School and is on staff at the F.M. Kirby Neurobiology Center at Boston Children's Hospital. She joins us as part of our annual series, The Genius Next Door. Welcome, Dr. Stevens, and congratulations. Thank you very much. Well, first we have to find out, how did you hear? Well, I got a mysterious phone call one day, uh, not too long ago, um, and it was one of those calls that forever changed my life, and it was quite a surprise, I must say. Uh, where were you, and what did you think when the person started telling you this great information? <laughs> sure. I was in my office uh, working on a grant application with my postdoc, and I got the call. She basically said, are you somewhere where you can speak confidentially? And I said, <laughs> well, sure. Closed my office door. And the next couple minutes, I barely remember. It was sort of a blur. I was pretty speechless. And, um, you know, not until the very end of the conversation where they started reading back to me a, a summary of my own work did I believe that it might be a legitimate call. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, we've heard uh, many stories from folks like yourself who've gotten the award, and some of them have really challenged whether these were the real people calling them, so that's funny. Yes, yes, <laughs> and I think part of this is you have no idea that you're even on anyone's radar. It just was such a shock. The last thing that was said was that I could only tell one person and that I needed to keep it a secret until a particular date, which was last, you know, last week. Uh, so I told my husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about your work. Um, and that's the reason that they found you and uh, want you to get even more recognition. Um, you work 
and look at how the brain wires up during development and how possibly that wiring uh, might go awry. And your particular focus is on something called synapses, which is how the neurons talk to each other, and a cell type called glia. We knew about the role of these cells when the brain is injured, but that was really where all the research was focused until about 10 years ago. Your research looks at something quite different. So tell us, what is the role of glia in your research, and, and why is it important? Sure. So the brain is, uh, contains millions of cells uh, and, and trillions of synaptic connections, and much of the field's mostly focused on the neurons, right? But there's another cell type called glia, which makes up the other half of the brain. And these cells are clearly important, uh, and the field has known that for quite some time. And over the last couple of decades, actually, it's become clear that glial cells play important roles in both brain development and brain function. But the particular glia that I've been studying, called microglia, were pretty much uh, not thought of uh, in terms of the healthy brain until, until very recently. Their role as our resident immune cells uh, were largely studied in the context of injury and disease. So these are cells that um, respond dramatically when the brain is injured, when there's inflammation, when there's damage. They undergo dramatic changes, but they can both protect the brain as well as harm the brain by releasing things that make the disease process worse. So when we started thinking about these cells, uh, it was really in the context of normal brain development. And in particular, we thought about the possibility that these cells could be helping to sculpt or prune extrasynaptic connections during development. I think that that is fascinating in that there's whole areas that people hadn't concentrated on, particularly when you understand that your work is connected to or may have implications for diseases like autism and Alzheimer's. And there's so much focus and work uh, in those areas. I can tell you personally, as the daughter of someone um, whose mother died of Alzheimer's, you know, the research I know about the brain really had to do with the plaques forming. And that's about it, you know. So this is a whole new way of looking at what possibly could be happening there. Right. I think that is one of the things that we're, that we're very excited about um, moving forward is this concept that these mechanisms, in particular these cells, uh, microglia, they've been long known to become very uh, activated and actually surround plaques in Alzheimer's brain. Um, but what we're finding is that these cells are actually very overactivated much earlier than, uh, than when they even before the plaques form. So, so the idea is that synapse loss, so the, the you know, the, the loss and dysfunction of the synaptic communication is thought to happen years before you start to see plaques and pathology and, and major memory loss. And so because of that, we've been focused in my lab on trying to understand how it is that these synapses get lost. What makes synapses vulnerable? Now, this is where we come in from a unique perspective because my lab actually studies the process of synaptic loss or pruning during normal development. And much of the work in my lab is focused on development, actually. I'm not an Alzheimer's uh, a scientist, and I, I mostly study the developing brain. And what's been, I think, quite interesting is the fact that this, these pathways that we've identified um, during normal development, which are during development a good thing, our work suggests that these pruning pathways become abnormally reactivated to mediate synaptic loss in some of these adult neurodegenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's disease. 
So what I think is interesting is that you are based at a children's hospital, but it seems that this work is mostly applicable to adults, even though, you're, you, you, as you've said, you're looking at the developing brain. Tell me how that your work at the children's hospital may influence or does influence uh, what your research is all about. Well, we, as I mentioned, I'm a developmental neurobiologist, so much of our effort is focused on understanding how the brain wires up during development. And at Children's, of course, that's a major focus of the research. However, I think what we've learned is that it twofold in terms of the disease relevance of our work. So I would say we have been spending quite a lot of time trying to understand how this process normally works, right? So if you can understand how this normally works, you can better understand how it goes awry in different disorders. We've been focused on two groups of disorders. One are neurodevelopmental disorders, such as autism, and neuropsychiatric and neurodevelopmental disorders, such as schizophrenia. Now, these are disorders that um, are thought to involve aberrant or abnormal brain wiring. And there is some evidence that synapse loss occurs in some of these disorders. So in one context, we're We've been applying what we've learned about normal development to understand whether this pathway could be underlying some of the brain wiring defects in these developmental disorders. In the same time, in parallel to this developmental work, we've been thinking about the possibility that the same pruning pathway could also be aberrantly turned on in the adult brain much later in the context such, such as Alzheimer's disease. And so what I think is really exciting and interesting about this is that it's potentially a common pathway that could be underlying synaptic and, and cognitive decline in multiple different disorders that affect both young children and older individuals. And that actually is really exciting also because it offers the possibilities that if we can understand how to disrupt this pathway and protect the synapses, it could have broad um, implications. It feels as though it could have broad implications sooner rather than later. Is that just the hopeful looking at it from someone like myself, or is that true? It's definitely an optimistic and hopeful uh, way to think about it, and we as scientists um, certainly hope to see that the research that we're working on is going to translate in this way. Um, what I am really excited about, and in particular since um, I've learned of this award, is the idea that I can still now start to work a little bit harder on the translational aspect of our work, start to collaborate with um, biotech companies and industry and other folks that start to think about how we could translate the mechanisms we've identified into potential therapeutics. This is not my area of expertise, of course, but we're in Boston, surrounded by all kinds of expertise, uh, ranging from biotech companies and, and big farm as well, um, as well as a lot of other individuals that have expertise in this, in this arena. So I think that's where the, you know, Boston and being in this area is a huge benefit, because now we can take advantage of that and start to talk to, to people in these areas to see how we could move this forward. My guest is Dr. Beth Stevens. Uh, she is an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at Harvard Medical School and on staff at the F.M. Kirby Neurobiology Center at Boston's Children's Hospital. And she is also a 2015 MacArthur Genius Awardee. So I'm always curious because I know that the whole myth of the scientists in the laboratory and the eureka moment is really quite a myth. But I'm curious about what started your interest in looking differently at this development? Was there some one thing that triggered and piqued your interest and you said, wow, I think I'm going to explore this way? Yeah, well, actually, serendipity underlies a lot of science. There's a, certainly a lot of luck and serendipity uh, that go on in the lab. 
And I would say in our case, I've long been interested in understanding how the brain wires up and, and, and how synapses are developing. And it was actually a screen in the lab when I was a postdoc at Stanford that unexpectedly identified a role of these immune-related molecules in this brain development process. Now, this was a surprise at the time because um, we didn't really think about immune proteins being expressed in the healthy brain. And in fact, many labs around that time were starting to discover the brain in many ways repurposes immune molecules and that one of their main roles is to help the brain wire up and develop properly. This was a moment that was, I think, very exciting because it was unexpected and it opened up lots of new directions and questions. So when I started my lab at Children's about seven years ago, I decided that this was an area I wanted to pursue, not just because it's an unknown area and, and there was much to learn, but because it also had the potential um, to be uh, uncovering new mechanisms of disease, which was something I've always been interested in. So I think this immune angle is what led me to microglia in many ways. And, and, and in that way, it's opened up so many new areas of research. And I think it's a new field uh, and a new uh, area of neuroscience. The idea that you know, neuroimmunology has been thought of in the context of disease for a long time, but this new version of neuroimmunology suggests the possibility that there's interactions between the nervous system and the immune system that are going on in the healthy brain and that this uh, is also potentially important in some of these diseases. So it's opened up a lot of new, uh, new exciting questions for us to focus on. So I have the sense of researchers like yourself, you know, working away in your lab with your lab assistants and students, and, and that it, you're very focused. And all of a sudden, you are recognized by who knows whatever large group nominated you for this. And right. I wonder if you think, how do they even find me? You know, how do they know about what's going on, what I'm doing, down to the level of specificity that they did by the time you were awarded? Right. Well, I think one of the things we do as scientists is we, we get out there and we, we communicate our, our results and our findings in a number of different forums, um, including conferences and meetings, as well as just, you know, you're invited oftentimes to give seminars in various universities. And I've done a lot of that over the last few years, even starting my first year as a young, uh, you know, investigator in, in my own lab. And I think that's actually really important and something I often try to tell my students that they also need to get out there because part of science is communicating your ideas and your, and your findings. I've had that opportunity to be able to share this work. Um, some of it's been published and a lot of it hasn't. But the more you have the opportunities to do this, I think the more people start to, to realize, okay, th you know, there may be something here. And the other thing about these meetings is it brings together scientists that work on very different areas, and oftentimes that's when the magic happens. Collaborations that form between immunologists and neurobiologists and geneticists, when you get those type of people around the table that normally wouldn't talk to each other, that's when innovative science really happens. And that's what I've really enjoyed over the last few years, and it's actually what's been helping to really move our, our work forward in creative new ways. And as an example, I, I will say that I, I'm not a trained immunologist, although I'm in that space now, but I'm surrounded here at Harvard and, and, and throughout Boston with really amazing immunology colleagues, immunologists, and, and I've learned a lot from them because I could give the same talk to immunologists that I do to neurobiologists, and I'll get completely different sets of questions. 
And I come away from the interactions with immunologists with a fresh new outlook on things. And that's the idea, is that you want to you wanna start to open your mind, think outside the box. And I think that's what's really exciting about being here. And it's, it's I think, really helped to move our work forward in, in interesting new ways. I wonder how you feel about having done some work, however long it took you to get here, that you have advanced the cause in, and in some way soon, patients, certainly like my mother, uh, it might be impacted. Right. Well, I, I should say I'm not a physician. I'm a, I'm a basic scientist. Um, and so although we do translationally relevant research, I don't see patients. But that said, I think that I'm in a unique situation here at Children's and in general, where we are interacting a lot with the clinicians and clinician scientists. Um, so what I think is really exciting is the idea that our findings could potentially lead somewhere down the road to, to potential new therapies. And, and that's the goal of all of our research. And I didn't really believe when I started my lab that I'd be thinking this way this soon. But that at the same time, I realized there's a lot to be done before we can, we can move it to, to therapy. But I think what's I think important is that you are in a situation where you can constantly interact with the physicians and, and the, the individuals that see patients because they bring not only a new perspective, but that's where some of the real translational and collaborations can occur. So got to ask this question. What do you think an award like this does to elevate women scientists? You know, there's been all kinds of mm-hmm. yang-yang about how many women uh, can be scientists. Is the world of science um, not uh, welcoming to, to women And I wonder if uh, you see it in any way having an impact on sort of the image and and, um, the stereotypes, really. I do think it does. I mean, there were a number of of women uh, awardees, and I think one of the things that's been really touching to me is that I've received a lot of emails and notes from from friends and family and colleagues over the last week. And the the ones that really uh, were, were really touching to me were the ones where uh, my friends or colleagues said, you know, you're a role model and, a, men- and a, a role model to my daughters or a role model to other young scientists, especially women scientists. And that's a real honor. And I really feel like this is our responsibility to try to, you know, help and support and mentor uh, young women scientists. In, in our field, there actually are a lot of graduate students and postdocs. So the balance there is quite, quite equal. The drop-off, however, is the next step, the faculty positions. There is an imbalance in many departments, although I think that in some departments there's a real effort to try to promote and and to recruit very talented uh, women scientists. But I think it's a thing where one of the challenges for for women is that if you want to have a family, and in particular uh, children, the idea of how are you going to balance all this. And so I have two young daughters, uh, five and eight, Riley and Zoe, and I had my first as a, as a postdoc at Stanford right before I started my own lab. And I had my second, my first year as, a, as, a, as an investigator in my own lab. So I feel like I've, you know, I've been through that. I started a lab. I started a family. Um, I have an incredibly supportive husband. And I've learned a lot along the way. It hasn't been easy, but we've, we've learned a lot about how to juggle and balance. And if I can share my experiences, both the good and the bad, with other young scientists, that is, I think, helpful because they want to know that it's not going to be easy, but it's doable. And the more women scientists that are doing this, I think that the, the more that shows that it can be done. And so I, I've been spending a lot of time 
speaking to other uh, young scientists about my experiences, if that will help them in any way. Well, that's wonderful. Now for the fun question. What are you going to do with the money for fun? <laughs> that is a that is the big question, and that's the the fun that is the fun part is actually starting to think about that part of it. And until this last couple of days, I haven't really thought much about that. I've been so swept up in the honor and the excitement of, of receiving the award, I haven't really thought about exactly what we're going to do. So I have some months to do that, and um, and I think I'm going to think very hard about about how we want to um, use the award. But I will say that um, one of the things that I'm I know it will help us to do is for me personally, uh, it will allow my lab to go after the kinds of questions that we're really excited about going after and not worry about funding so much. I think it'll also allow more flexibility for me personally in terms of spending more time with my lab and with my family and less time writing grants and doing some of the things we don't always want to do. And that will help with the balance, and I think that's really important. And so there's many ways I can imagine that award will help me in that, in that regard. But I think the other thing that's exciting to me is that we have a whiteboard in my, in my office of all the projects and questions that we're interested in, and it's a long list. And some of them are more the sort of, yeah, wouldn't this be great if we could do that? They're really hard questions. There's not a lot known, and they're pretty much on the back burner. But now I think I'm very excited about moving some of those back burner projects onto the front burner because it gives us the freedom and flexibility to be creative, to be bold, to go after those types of questions, not 10 years from now, but actually now. And so that to me is thrilling, and, and that's really to me what this award represents. Well, congratulations, and you earned it. So enjoy <laughs> during Thank all you that so exploration. Much. Yeah, very excited. Thank you. Dr. Beth Stevens is an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at Harvard Medical School and is on staff at the F.M. Kirby Neurobiology Center at Boston Children's Hospital. She is a 2015 MacArthur Genius Awardee. Coming up, our series, The Genius Next Door, continues with MIT professor Heidi Williams, who studies technological change in healthcare markets. Her most recent work evaluates the best way to invest in research, incentivize production, and improve public health care policy. That's next on Under the Radar. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar. Last month, a businessman bought the patent for a powerful HIV drug, only to increase the price more than 4,000%. Controversies like those are at the center of Heidi Williams' work, which grounds itself in the question, how can we improve medicine from patents to production? Heidi Williams is an assistant professor of economics at MIT. She is a 2015 MacArthur awardee, and she joins us as part of our ongoing series, The Genius Next Door. Well, welcome, Professor Williams, and congratulations. Thank you, and thanks very much for having me. How did you find out? We love those stories. 
Uh, I got a phone call about two weeks ago, and uh, I was in my office at MIT, and I just about fainted. I think I was uh, just incredibly shocked and incredibly humbled to hear the good news from the foundation. Well, let's talk about your work, um, which is how they came to recognize you. You have described it as sort of being at the intersection of law and science and um, uh, economics, all of that. It's all a big um, stew, if you will. And somehow you pinpointed an area that uh, it seems that few have gone into. I wonder if you would talk to us about exactly how your work is to be regarded. Uh, we understand that most healthcare economics people are looking at sort of the old models of what is cost care containment, all of that. Um, but you're doing something different. Yes, I think that's right. Um, there's a lot of work by health economists and people that think very seriously about healthcare markets on aspects, certain aspects of the market, like insurance. My work tends to be focused more on thinking about whether we're getting the right kinds of medical technologies developed and to think about ways of trying to improve public policy that might make it more likely that we obtain the technologies that are most going to benefit patients. Broadly, my work tries to understand where there are the most private incentives for investing in new medical technologies and where there's the highest social value from certain kinds of technologies that could be developed but may not be because of a lack of incentives to bring ideas that people have in the research labs to actual technologies that go through the FDA approval process and actually reach patients. When there's misaligned private incentives and social contributions, you tend to get things that are very controversial. My work tends to focus a lot on the other side of the spectrum, which is very socially valuable technologies that may never reach the market because there's a lack of private incentives. And so in either direction, you can have just a mismatch between how profitable it is for firms to develop certain technologies and what the value to patients would be if we actually had gotten those developed. So give us some examples of the work that you do on the other side, as you say, where there are an example of a technology that just might not be interesting enough to a private company to fund. Sure. One recent paper that I have with uh, two co-authors, Ben Rowan at Sloan and Eric Budish at Chicago Booth, investigated whether we have incentives to bring cancer drugs to market in the way that we would want from a social perspective. And so basically the key idea of what we look at is that in order to bring a drug to market in the United States, you need to show the government evidence that your drug is safe and effective. And traditionally, the standard for doing that is you need to conduct a clinical trial to show that your drug improves survival relative to some control group. It turns out that you can show evidence that your drug improves survival much more quickly if your clinical trial is conducted on patients that are going to have short survival prospects or who are going to die relatively quickly. So if you contrast two types of cancers, late-stage breast cancer and early-stage breast cancer, late-stage breast cancer patients just have a much poorer outlook in terms of their survival. And so you're going to be able to show a statistically significant difference between your treatment and a control group much more quickly than if you need to show that mortality improves for patients that have a survival time of, you know, nine or 10 years. And so what we look at in our paper is this question of, um, does that difference in the time it takes to put a drug through clinical trials translate into a distortion where private firms underinvest in developing drugs to treat early stage cancers relative to these late stage cancers. 
And, you know, the time and trials is sort of one aspect of why that might be a problem. But another aspect of the problem that we focused on was the patent system. So firms traditionally file patents before they start clinical trials. And what that means is that every additional day that you spend in a clinical trial is one less day that you're actually charging these higher prices once your drug is being sold to consumers. And so both the patent system and other aspects of the drug development system seem to create this systematic bias away from drugs to treat early stage cancers, which is arguably where they might be more easily cured than treating late stage disease. I just want to repeat that. So they filed the patent before they've really done the work to even know if this is going to be something at the end. Yes, they almost always file the patent after they've done some work. Um, but basically, they have a very strong incentive to file the patent before they start clinical trials. And the clinical trials process is a really long and uh, costly process for the firms to undergo. Which then, you know, that's their argument when that we've heard, we, we the people, that listen, we put all this time and effort into it and we should get some return if, in fact, we've demonstrated that this can be helpful. But you're saying all this time is passing and there are other ways to look at this and it's just not um, efficient or cost, or in a cost-saving way, really, or even helpful, really, because it doesn't help the patient. <laughs> yeah, so so basically what our work is focusing on is that the because the patents do start before clinical trials start, um, you systematically are giving different amounts of patent protection to different drugs that take different amounts of time to develop. And so the way we try to analyze that formally in the paper is we have a thought experiment of, if we allowed firms to conduct shorter clinical trials, would you get more research investment? Would you get more drugs developed? And would patient health outcomes improved? And um, through some uh, different ways of looking at the that kind of question, we get an answer of yes. So it looks like if you did allow firms to conduct shorter trials, you would get more drugs developed. And what you can think of as the missing drugs, so the drugs that would be developed if they were allowed to run shorter trials but not otherwise, look like they would induce a big gain in terms of improved survival time of patients. So why isn't that happening? <laughs> well, so uh, as an academic, you know, I try really hard to do policy-relevant research, and I would say that we do an analysis in the paper of different policy mechanisms that are relatively simple that could address this distortion. Um, that said, you know, it's a long way from academics talking about things to getting things implemented in practice. And, you know, part of what's wonderful about this opportunity with the MacArthur Foundation is I'm hopeful that we'll be able to have more of a platform for discussing with people whether some of the policies that we've analyzed might actually be able to be closer to implemented in practice. That's my guest, uh, Heidi Williams. She is an MIT economist and a 2015 MacArthur genius. You know, I was intrigued by your saying that there is a cost uh, a different kind of cost, I guess, of poor decision policies, but they are mostly invisible. Um, can you give me an example of what you meant by that? And 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 um, because I'm sure we we must it must be hidden in plain sight, but we just don't recognize it. Yes, I think when people try to think about patent policies and whether patent policies are appropriately designed, one reason it's been hard for people to think about that in a very formal way is that the costs of poorly designed policies tend to be invisible, as you said. So if you have a, a drug treatment um, and you put it in a randomized clinical trial, you can see if the drug is not an advance for patients because patients don't realize any better health outcomes than if they were in the control group. For patent policy, we never run the equivalent of a randomized trial. And what's difficult is 
The costs of poorly designed policy are essentially that there are some scientifically feasible technologies that researchers at MIT or you know, researchers at the National Institutes of Health have ideas for, but never actually realize the levels of investment that they would need to get translated into medications that actually reach patients. And so in some sense, it's just there's no place that you can go to get data on technologies that could have existed but don't. And a lot of what my work tries to do is to collect new data sets and construct new types of empirical methodologies that can help me to measure that missing innovation, which is essentially the cost of poorly designed policies that could be improved. So how did you find your way into studying this? You know, as I said um, at the beginning of our conversation, as I understand and have interacted with economists who are in looking at uh, healthcare markets, this has not been their focus. <laughs> their focus is really about what's happening now, you know, these current models and how we're either losing money or somebody's getting gouged or whatever, which is very valuable. I'm, I'm not saying that's not valuable. It has been in showing us all, I think, uh, the cost of healthcare. But because you've zeroed in on this, on this, this little area, or it, which is an increasingly large area about innovation and its impact, I'm just curious about what, what were you just working through something else, and then suddenly you realize this is where I should be focusing. I think my interest got spurred in this area because, you know, if you look at just broad trends over like the last 50 years, what we've seen is a big increase in healthcare cost growth and also an improvement in health outcomes. And so you can take case studies like care for low birth weight infants or care for patients that have had heart attacks and identical patients, you know, one that was uh, getting medical treatment in the 1960s and one that was getting medical treatment today, uh, your health outcomes will be much better today, but at a much higher cost. And so when people think about, well, what's driving the cost increase and the improvement in outcomes, there's a consensus among economists that's relatively informal that's both of those trends are explained by technological change in healthcare. And so it's funny that people sort of recognize that that's this, you know, uh, giant in the room of what we think is driving these macro trends. But there are relatively few people studying what drives technological change in healthcare markets. And in particular, are we getting what we would think of as the correct technologies developed from a social perspective. And so I sort of saw that as something where we're sort of speaking to the big picture questions that we want to know about. How can we improve people's health, but sort of really digging into what people think the underlying forces are of the macro trend. So this is, as I said, a, a fairly new area, at least one that I was not aware of before. And you're fairly new in your career, not new, but young in your career, I would say. So yes. there's a lot. Yes. What, what direction do you think you'll go in now? A, because you've gotten this great gift and which can allow you to do some different things, but also where you were actually planning to go even before this happened. So I would say that a lot of my inspiration for my work comes from talking with researchers that are actually doing work in these fields. So whether that's basic scientists or medical researchers or um, people you know, working more on the patent side or people in government, and just hearing from them about cases where they had an idea for a project that they thought was really scientifically promising, but that something got in the way of them being able to develop it. And so a lot of what I'm really hoping for, actually, with this grant is to be able to have an opportunity to talk with more of those people. Because, you know, as an economist, I'm interested in collecting large-scale data sets that can allow me to ask, you know, is an anecdote that I heard from a basic science researcher actually something that's systematically causing quantitatively important distortions in the economy? And so 
a lot of what helps me is to hear from people about cases that you know they see as problems in the system that could be improved. And then it's my job to go figure out ways of collecting data and designing ways of looking at the data that let me ask, you know, is that just one person's experience or is that something that's actually a big enough problem on a large enough scale that we might want to think about redesigning public policies to try to fix that distortion? So what do you think this winning this will do for you? You know, here's the thing I love about the MacArthur um, Fellowship Program. You're just doing your thing. You got your nose to the grindstone, just concentrating. You're getting really excited about the area you're working in. And when I say you, I mean all of the yous in the, in the, in the fellows that they select. And then suddenly you get a tap and somebody has recognized you doing your thing. And that's, you know, it seems to me they always select people who were just going to be going forward without this, but now with this, something else has happened. I just, you know, marvel at the fact that somebody saw you doing your thing. Are you amazed by that as well? Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm a, a junior faculty member at MIT. You know, I feel like I just come to work every day and I'm trying to get through my day and teaching and working with our wonderful PhD students and doing my research. And then someone calls and says, you know, here's a vote of confidence that we think you're going to be able to continue to do work that's socially useful. And here's some resources to try to help you do that. And it's just incredibly humbling to hear that from the foundation. And I, you know, it just makes you really take a step back and think, well, how could I best use this to do more of the work that I want to do? And to be honest, I haven't quite figured that out yet, but I'm really looking forward to trying to figure that out over the next couple of months. Well, we know that you're probably going to do something with regard to your research, but now what are you going to use the money for for fun? Have you thought about that? <laughs> well, you know, it's not a surprise to say that for academics, you know, we're in it because the research is fun for us. So. <laughs> okay. Well, congratulations. I'm so happy that you have time to do that. And um, I certainly know that the work that you're doing is going to pay off. But thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Heidi Williams is an assistant professor of economics at MIT and a 2015 MacArthur Genius Awardee. She joined us as part of our annual series, The Genius Next Door. I'm Callie Crossley. This is Under the Radar. Up next, how can we learn to dream again? That's the theme of the play, Mr. Joy, written by Arts Emerson artist-in-residence Daniel Beatty. The play takes place in a Harlem community where the shoe repair shop run by Chinese immigrant Mr. Joy is a neighborhood staple. Mr. Joy goes missing and the travails and truths about members of the community are revealed. Both Beatty and actress Tangela Large join me for a conversation about community, immigration, and redemption. That's next. You're listening to Under the Radar. This is Under the Radar. I'm Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. 
The time is now and the scene is Harlem, the front stoop of Mr. Joy's shoe repair shop. And the question is, what happened to Mr. Joy? Turns out there are many answers embedded in the stories of neighborhood residents, interlocking mini-dramas which unfold in the play Mr. Joy, written by Arts Emerson artist-in-residence Daniel Beatty. Beatty's critically acclaimed plays, which include Through the Night and The Tallest Tree in the Forest, Paul Roberson, have been performed at Lincoln Center and the White House. An award-winning actor, singer, and motivational speaker, Beatty has won the Opie Award for Writing and Performance and two NAACP Theater Awards. And he joins me now. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Tangela Large has performed in regional theater from Seattle to San Francisco to Providence, Rhode Island, where she was nominated for a Motif Award for Best Supporting Actress. In Mr. Joy, she is a one-woman show performing more than five distinctly different characters. And Tangela Large joins me in studio. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have both of you. Daniel, let me start with you. Um, you got the idea for the character and the play, I understand, from real life. Explain. Absolutely. About uh, eight years ago, I was living in a community in New York, and there was a Chinese-American man who fixed my shoes. And I was a struggling actor at that point and a teaching artist and didn't have a lot of money. And he worked magic. I'd take my one pair of uh, fancy uh, beat-up shoes into a shop, and they'd come out like new. One morning I woke up and the shop was boarded up and there was caution tape around the outside. And, you know, I asked my neighbors what happened and people said, you know, we think somebody attacked him. Uh, but I never saw anything in the newspaper. But the story lived with me for a lot of years. And I eventually wrote this play that, you know, asked the question, what happened to Mr. Joy? And uh, the play, we should explain to people, is really about we learn about Mr. Joy through the experiences and the stories of the other people um, who are asking the question. Absolutely. Uh, most of my work deals with themes of race and class in America. And, you know, this was a Chinese-American man who was had a shoe repair shop for many years in a largely African-American neighborhood. So this landscape is a really wonderful opportunity to talk about many urgent issues um, of race and class in this country right now. Well, I got to say, you have a lot going on in this play. You got characters dealing with HIV, gay rejection by family members, grandmothers raising motherless kids, gentrification, education, gangs. If I just list it that way, it would sound overwhelming <laughs> <laughs> to anybody thinking, wow, how would that get in, all, in one play? But in fact, it really unfolds quite naturally, um, basically because of the brilliance of one Tangela Large, who's sitting here, so as she tells the stories of each of these people. Tangela, how do you approach telling all these different stories? Um, well, this time around, I just wanted to, to be able to find the truth and humanity within the characters. Um, I was blessed to have the opportunity to perform the show first in Pittsburgh at the City Theater. And that was a wonderful experience. But, you know, as an artist, I was always eager to, to do it again, you know, and to get to get even deeper, you know, and more honest and true. So, you know, Mr. Beatty gives me a big gift. The text is wonderful. So if I have some good language... And, and we can find some truth, then, then the process is a lot easier. Describe for people the many characters that you portray on stage. Absolutely. So the play opens with this nine-year-old, beautiful, bright-eyed little black girl, and her name is Clarissa. And you actually see the play through her eyes, you know? This little girl is going through a lot, but... 
the gorgeous thing about this play and the message is that the themes are somewhat raw, but, you know, you have to have joy. That's what humanity is. You know, we go through things, but we still have a sense of pride and a sense of nobleness to tackle each day with a smile, you know. And some of the other characters, you get to meet Clarissa's grandmother, who is an advocate for the community and a tough older woman. The play is also seen through the eyes of Mr. Joy's son and a, a real estate a real estate tycoon. So you have all of these characters. You know, I don't want to give too much away, but all of the characters are so contrasting and so gorgeously human. Give us a little piece of Clarissa, if you would. Um, okay. Hey. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a story, okay? It's called Black Aisha and the Seven Shorties. And I'm not talking about Snow White. I'm not even talking about light Aisha, because light-skinned Aisha is proof that light ain't always cute. So I don't pay her no attention. No, I'm talking about black Aisha, and she is black. Black as night, and she is beautiful. Black and smooth and beautiful, like dark chocolate melting in the sun. Oh, thank you. One of Clarissa's Clarissa's little stories. Uh, That's Tangela (laughs) Zard. She's my guest, and she is the actress, the actress, portraying all of the characters in Daniel Beatty's uh, wonderful play, Mr. Joy, which is at uh, the Emerson's Jackie Liebergott Black Box Theater, part of the Paramount Complex. So, Daniel, back to you. Um, You got the idea. You put all those issues and different characters telling their stories um, so we get to learn what their stories are. But it's to also let us know what happened to Mr. Joy. And, of course, as you say, you never knew what happened. Um, And we're touching on all of the issues, the spectrum of issues, as you said, between race and class. So the question is, why this play now? I mean, I think I could answer it from my perspective, but from your perspective as a writer, why this play now? You know, I've been writing on these themes of race and class, and in particular, the urgency of themes facing our urban centers, in particular, African-Americans. But this particular moment in our society with uh, police brutality, with the burning of the churches, uh, with the urgency of the economy over the past years, this is a new moment uh, to look at these themes uh, more closely. So I was thrilled to have the opportunity to present this play um, in venues around the country and especially in Boston. You know, you mentioned earlier that the play is chocked full of some urgent themes and you know, that may be a lot for some people to comprehend when it's just listed in that way, uh, but that's the reality of what many people in our urban centers are dealing with. And the possibility and the gift of artistry is to put those ideas in flesh and blood in a character that's dimensional in human form and then create a well half-crafted story that has humor, Uh, that has a lot of humanity, that sees the characters' relationships with one another, that sees the characters fighting to overcome obstacles, and then through that humanity and through the specificity of characters and stories, allow those to not become hot topics, but those issues to become humanized in a way that people who may not deal with them personally or may not understand them more deeply than a headline can have some deep understanding. I'm wondering if your being based in Boston influenced your writing of this play. I know some of the characters had appeared 
in other spaces before. But but being based in Boston, this is a city that certainly has some fraught issues around race uh, and, and uh, class as well. Uh, if if there was any influence in the writing of this piece, absolutely. Part of my residency uh, at Arts Emerson is this program that's in three cities, Boston being one, called iDream. So we're working on iDream Boston, and it uses the tools of creativity and storytelling to look at the legacy of race and class and equity and uh, work with people who are doing powerful work in every city, truly, um, to look at new strategies uh, to build a movement around eradicating some of these urgent issues. And I've had the opportunity in Boston to do interviews with almost 20 people um, who are working in this sector throughout the city of Boston. Um, the first year of the residency was really just about listening. We did a lot of public conversations, a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings. Um, and there are brilliant thinkers and doers in the city. Um, there are certainly urgent issues in Boston as there are, are in most American cities. Um, and being able to be um, in the presence of people who are thinking so deeply about these themes in Boston has certainly impacted my work. Now back to you, Tangela. Uh, part of the what we learn at, at, before the play opens um, they give the audience permission to speak back to you. Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder what is, that is like as an actress who's focused on, first of all, you got many characters that you have to pay attention to and a lot of dialogue in an 85-minute yeah. play. And then folk are talking back. So, <laughs> so what do you get from that? How does that impact you? Hey, as long as you're not intoxicated, we can have a good, we can have a good time. No, it's, it's amazing and it's helpful because, you know, the audience is, is, is my acting partner in a sense. You know, this is a one-person show. So the energy that the audience gives me, it, it helps me drive the story. It helps me um, um, drive the narrative. So it's helpful, you know. I never look at it as, as to where, oh, my gosh, you know, what do I do with this? And, you know, the beautiful thing about Arts Emerson and what David Dower, who is the director of Mr. Joy, and what Daniel, what they are doing, you know, the audiences are so diverse you know, so when I get to step foot on that stage and I literally see the characters that I'm performing, they are a direct manifestation of the words. You know, it, it changes me. It gives me a different type of energy. And, you know, and as an artist, I'm thinking, OK, I can't let these people down. I got to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Daniel, you should know the night that I saw the play, I was telling Tangela before, um, my friend, I took my friend with me, and she got all into the response. <laughs> she very much enjoyed responding. I said, can you be quiet? She's just responding away. So it really impacts at her. Just want to know that, you know, that part of, is working very well, and Tangela's yeah. performance inspired it it's as lovely. well. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I love when that happens, you know. <laughs> so, so, so much of what happens in the theater um, nowadays you know, people, uh, they go and they sit and they think deeply and they may be moved a little. Um, I'm uh, from the school of, of theater and just my personal passions. I want people to be affected deeply. You know, laughter, uh, call to action, you know, maybe some tears. To me, uh, there's too many urgent things happening in the world for me to use uh, my talents and my time for something that would be casual entertainment. Well, um, and, you know, Tangela's passion and that call to respond is not just the response for that moment, but it's a response for how the work lives with you beyond the theater. 
Absolutely. Well, I should tell you that in addition to that, um, when Tangela gets to a certain part where it inspires tears, there are many parts, um, you know, I shed a little tear, everybody shed a little tear, it got really quiet. I wonder for you, Tangela, is this hard to do because you're, you're because of the personalities of the characters you're going from? Humor, it's a lot of humor in it, by the way, that people should not be afraid, yeah, you know, uh, yeah. to... Um, it's a stand-up some, routine. Right, so. some dark moments and back and forth and very quickly. How hard is that? Hmm. hmm. I don't think it is that hard. <laughs> you know, for me, um, I actually feel better once I finish speaking these words. You know, because the beautiful thing about this play and how it's changed me is that I'm going through a healing process, too, just like the audience members. And, you know, that's what Daniel Beatty's work speaks on, how we're all interconnected. <laughs> so it's not that hard for me because, like I said, I just go by character by character and I rely on the text and, and I feel a sense of liberation once I'm finished. Well, it's really quite a tour de force, I have to say. It rem puts me in mind, I'm sure this is not the first time any of you, both of you have heard this, of Anna DeVere Smith's work, where she wow. reports um, pieces like Twilight, you know, goes out to yeah. talk to the real characters and then puts that together, writes it, and then, but she herself portrays all the characters. So I don't know, Daniel, were, is that, uh, were you influenced by that in any way, or, or is it just um, you two are on similar paths? You know, uh, it's funny you mentioned Anna DeVere Smith. I also do a lot of speaking uh, for nonprofits and foundations, and I'm usually there the year after Anna DeVere Smith has been there or the year before she comes. So we, we seem to be in a lot of circuits. Um, you know, I love her work. We are very different. Um, her work is uh, very much researched on uh, real-life events. She spends time uh, with the actual people to create the characters, and then she... Uh, puts those characters on stage li using literally um, and exclusively text from those interviews. Um, all of my text is imagined, um, except for when I do a historical piece like the piece that I did on Paul Robeson. And even in that moment, I didn't get to speak with the actual man, obviously, um, but it was using historical documents. Um, I think another uh, distinction between our work, which people might find interesting because it also specifies what Mr. Joy is, I play a lot with archetypes mm -hmm. and I play with a lot of humor. So um, my deepest truth and belief is that we're all connected to each other and responsible for one another. And if we could just really see each other, um, a lot of our problems in this world would be solved. Um, but we often only see uh, one dimensional, maybe two dimensional ideas of who we are through media. Um, but if you can start with that and people can say, oh, I recognize that and maybe even use a lot of humor, which is something one of my mentors, Ruby D, taught me about. And then allow that humor and that archetype to deconstruct to deep, deep humanity to a real three-dimensional person before you. Uh, the audience is actually getting to meet someone and really get to know someone they might not otherwise. So I stayed for the talk back, a little bit of the talk back after. There's a lot of young people there. And very interesting, many of them said they recognized some of the people, the characters. They felt very at home with them. They felt connected to them. And I wonder, Tangela, when you have an experience like that, which is imagined but is very much connected to some people's real experiences, um, do you think about what you want the audience to take away with at the end or how to feel at the end, or does that not enter into your performance? 
in a sense, it, 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 it lets me know that my job is done, you know? Um, those talkbacks are so gorgeous because, you know, after I go on this journey with the, with the audience, you know, I get to see how, they, how they've come out, <laughs> you know, whether they got PTSD or whether they feel liberated <laughs> or whether they still laughing, you know? And it touches my soul. It touches my soul, especially for the young people, to be able to be affected by this play. You know, and the young people that I have come across at these talkbacks have have felt so much liberation and so much pride, not only for the story, but to be able to see just a 27 year old black girl with a with a fro saying these words. You know, it means something. It means something. And as an artist, it's empowering because um, it lets you know that your work is never in vain. You know, Daniel, same question to you. What 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 do you want um, people to take away and um, and as I said, folks really responded in the talkback. Yeah, I I feel um, a lot of things. One is that uh, we are living in a world, you know, with technology, with the fast turnover of news cycles. You know, there's a big story at last two or three days, and we're off to the next. Um, the theater is a really sacred place because um, there are a few places where we sit together um, in you know large numbers. We feel deeply. We go through an experience, and if the um, art has the intention, um, it provokes us to change in some way. Um, so my work, you know, has these themes of you know our interconnectedness to one another, um, seeing the urgency um, of issues in our urban centers, giving voice to the voiceless. And those are all things that I hope um, the audience takes away. But more than anything, um, I hope they have an experience of being moved deeply enough um, and brought uh, present enough to the moment in some way that something new becomes possible. And for each individual, what that is might be different, but I think that's the magic and the gift of the theater. immediate, urgent presence in the moment, which is the space where I think transformation can happen. Well, thank you very much, and thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Daniel Beatty is Arts Emerson Artist-in-Residence, whose latest play is Mr. Joy. He's an award-winning actor, singer, and motivational speaker who has won the Obie Award for Writing and Performance and has two NAACP Theater Awards. Tangela Large performs more than five characters in the solo play Mr. Joy. Large has acted in regional theaters across the country and was nominated for a Motif Award for Best Supporting Actress. Mr. Joy will run through Sunday, October 18th, at the Jackie Liebergott Black Box Theater, part of Emerson's Paramount Theater. That's it for this special edition of Under the Radar. Join us next week at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed, and including Lanyap, our Something Extra segment. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at wgbhnews.org utr. I'm Callie Crossley. Our engineers are Alan Mattis and Doug Schugertz. Catherine Whalen is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.